Good morning, and welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to make it out. Uh, it was last Sunday before Christmas. Is that going to turn me down just a hair? Thanks. Uh, he's like, I'm on it. I'm already doing it. Um, yeah, thanks for being here. It, it is it is a, a great time of the year, and I'm thankful for your you're able to be here. I know it's like traditionally on, on, on Christmas and Easter, normally churches get like you know filled and packed, and and uh, but our church traditionally is the opposite uh, because you know we're the youngins, and usually we go home to see mom and grandma. Uh, and so, anyways, thank you for being here, and uh, we're just gonna jump into this like anything. We're we're doing things a little bit out of order, a little bit differently this morning, just because we're going to. Um, because it is just this season, and we have a lot of Christmas carols planned, and so uh, we're not going to do the, we're not going to light any candles now. We're going to save that for Christmas Eve at five, as Nolan just said. Um, but I'm excited about that service. We get to hear the organ uh, pumped out, and we're, so we're going to get combined. We're going to do some songs, half the songs with our, our worship team, and then half the songs with uh, the organ. And uh, we're going to be reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and, and really excited about that. It's always a good time. So. Come out to that. But anyways, we're going to end the service by just singing some Christmas carols together, uh, dim the lights a little bit, and uh, just having uh, just a time of remembrance of, of what God did for us and, and with Jesus. Uh, one thing I want to do, and um, and so if you're going to be at some point, those of you listening to this online, uh, this is this is big news. And so I'm excited about this. I actually want Paul Stiver and Allison Stiver to come up here as well as Josh and Katie Daramola, if you, if you wouldn't mind uh, coming up here. Katie's like, I didn't know I was going up. Um, but you are. Uh, so, um, so these these uh, two two men in particular, their wives, uh, appreciate uh, both of their families. Uh, they've been here from the beginning. Paul, as you know, has been an intern at Hope uh, for this is his third year. He's got just another half half year left, just one more semester. Um, and he's been a good friend, a great co-leader, uh, helping out with uh, systematic theology downtown for the last two years, teaching the interns and. Uh, have loved, I've, I love being able to see this guy and where he's come. That we met for coffee probably four or five years ago, and he wanted to be mentored or something. I don't know what was going on, but we sat down and I was like, What do, what do you want? Like, what do we, why are we doing this uh, together? And he was like, I don't know, man, but I didn't, he just wanted to learn. He wanted to grow, and it's been a lot of fun to see uh, him. Uh, Josh and Katie, they were actually the first couple that when we said, Hey, we want to start this new crazy idea. Uh, starting a church in Lower Town, and they were the first couple to say, hey, we, we want to ask some questions, and, and we're in, and we met over at the Buttered Tin just down the street here and, and had a good meal, and, and uh, we were able to get to know them a little bit better, and, and their little girls are the same exact ages pretty much as our, our boys, um, as well know. What's that? She's shaking her head. Oh, Angela's shaking her head, yeah. No, my wife. Um, anyways, what, what I have them up here for is that these, these men, last, the beginning of the month, they were approved uh, to, to start the candidacy process of being elders uh, here specifically at Hope Lower Town. Um, and that, that comes with a lot of things. They're already doing a lot of that work, and it's really just recognizing them like, hey, you're already functioning, if you will, as an elder, and we just want to make that uh, real and recognize there's a little bit of that, that authority, if you will, that gives them the ability to, to preach. Um, at, at Hope, you have to be an elder uh, to preach, and so that's why we've been bringing uh, Drew Pastor Drew and other pastors here and other elders from, from our downtown campus that have helped fill the pulpit for me. But it just kind of makes sense to have uh, men who are from this uh, body, who know you, who love you, and who are going to serve you. So actually, Paul is actually going to be finishing up this series uh, next week, and I'm really excited. Just, just for me, my own health, uh, to have some help around here. Um, and uh, would love to obviously have Josh uh, up here as well when, when, we, when the opportunity arises and just gives me a break. I don't get to just sit under the preaching of God's word. Um, and so it's, it's just a, it's a joy 
uh, to me. So I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for what they do and Josh helping out with, uh, it's, it's not a partner, Project Home. Um, and so they're actually cooking a meal uh, this afternoon. And so excited for what they're doing as well. And um, anyways, I'm just going to pray for them if that's okay. And uh, and again, this is this is just their, their candidates. This doesn't mean that it's official. Uh, we are currently going through our elder statement of faith um, uh, in, a, in a deeper way. And, uh, and it doesn't mean if, if they don't become elders, it means that like, oh, they've got some crazy theological thing. It could be any number of things. It could be just families or the time commitment. But if something comes up, uh, but they were voted on uh, by the elders downtown uh, to start this process. So uh, let me let me let me pray for them as we as we move on. Father, uh, again, I thank you for for Paul and for Josh. I thank you for their leadership in this church, in this body, in your body. Um, that this is not our church, um, and so would you just help these uh, under shepherds of you uh, to be able to help. Um, steer this ship in a spiritual manner that would be honoring and pleasing to you, um, that as they come alongside of me, um, that they would be able to help um, uh, and spiritually guide the people in this and the families in this church. Um, and so, God, um, unless you help us, we labor in vain. And so I pray that these men would just have a special anointing of the Spirit and um, that you would help guide them um, and protect their families um, from the attacks of the evil one. And so, God, I pray now for a blessing upon them and their families in this church. And, um, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right. We are entering uh, week three of the advent of looking at come thou long expected Jesus and I've been I've been starting every week with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and 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 this this one in particular the last ones were like that doesn't really fit with the sermon I mean I guess it kind of does but this one like really did and so I wanted to do that and then, and yet this morning uh, we were praying and and we do pray at eight eight fifteen uh, every Sunday so if you want to want to come out and join us in that we just meet just down the hallway in the library love to have you come and pray but um. Nate Grayburn was actually praying uh, just just for humility, and and I mean I wish I could have just recorded that and then just said exactly what his prayer was, um, but uh, he really hit on what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says uh, this morning. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just uh, German theologian, pastor. So I just want to read this quote, and uh, and then we're going to jump into uh, the sermon and the passage for today. So he says this: For the great and the powerful of this world. There are only two places in which their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls, and from which they shy away. These are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No powerful person dares to approach the manger, and this even includes King Herod. For this is where thrones shake and the mighty fall, the prominent perish, because God is with the lowly. Here the rich Come to nothing, because God is with the poor and the hungry, but the rich and the satisfied he sends away empty. Before Mary, the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God in lowliness, the powerful come to naught. They have no right, no hope. They are judged. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? And here's his answer. Whoever finally lays down all power all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. And as we look at this Christmas season, there's, some, there's so much joy that comes from this season. 
There is, just on a personal level of, of getting together with friends and family. Um, every other year, we, they, we spend it with my side of the family or my wife's side of the family, and, and she's got a, a big, uh, I mean, in numbers, a family. And so we go and, and we all get together, and there's like 50 or 60 of us, even more now. They're all having kids, and, and we actually have to go to someone's church. There's like four pastors in the family, so we just go to someone's church, and we get together, and, and we play football. There's kind of these two generations of cousins, the older cousins and the younger cousins. I'm actually one of the younger cousins. Um, even though I'm, I'm getting there, and uh, we play a good good game of football, and, and we just have a lot of fun. And, and but yet they all love Jesus, and so we're able to to rejoice and and look at God and and the manger. Um, and I, and I'm just this this is the first year. I mean, Christmas has always been a lot of fun, but this is the first year I've really been able to just live vicariously through my my two year old again. Um, just the joy that he sees and all these things, right? We had these presents laying around and he can look at a tag and it says, oh, that has an H on it. You know, that, that's for me, you know? Like he just gets so excited and that one's got a J. Oh, that's for Jack, you know? Like, it's like, yeah, that's right. You know, but there's just so much joy in that. And I just want that to be us this season, to be able to look at these ancient texts and say, this is good and this is true. This isn't just some random story. And so I've really, really loved being able to dig into this gospel of Matthew as we look at it through the lens of Matthew and looking at now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me just read the passage we're going to be digging in today. And there's just a couple statements and a couple key words that, that sometimes I just, I just gloss over because I've just heard this so many times. And, and I want to look at this like my two-and-a-half-year-old and just say, wow, this is amazing. This presence for me, right? This is for us. Let's, let's read this passage. Um, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report him to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On the coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country on another route. So that is the passage we're going to look at today, and there's just a couple phrases that I want to, I want to dig into, but the first one that I want to look at is, who was Herod the Great? Who was this, this king? Who was this individual? And what, what is so significant about this man? Why is he a key player in the story and the birth of Jesus? And so looking back at that verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, um, and, he's, and he's labeled king here. I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. 
um, magi, these, these wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? When we saw his star, it rose, and, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. And as I was reading this, there's just that phrase that just jumped out to me off the page. It says that King Herod was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. I think in my mind and understanding this story and having read it countless times, I kind of understand why King Herod would be disturbed, but why all of Jerusalem with him? And so I had to do a little bit more digging. And so this is just kind of King Herod and his seal, uh, that there would have been coins that were made uh, after his image and, and all these different things. And so uh, King, King Herod, let me, let me back up a little bit and just explain how the Roman Empire worked. Um, and so Jerusalem right now is underneath the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so Caesar Augustus is in charge. He's the Caesar. He's, he's the dictator in, in charge of all of this, this, this land, the region. And so... What would happen is that when they would, uh, when when Rome would annex another country or take over another country or a region, they would say, "Hey, listen, you can keep doing everything the same way you've been doing it. You don't got to change anything, except you need to learn our language. You're gonna pay taxes to Caesar, and you also have to recognize that Caesar is God." Right? That was what they had to do. And so, in a polytheistic community where they had many gods, that really wasn't a big deal. Right? That was like, all right, we just. Add another god to the to the you know the Rolodex, uh, right? Um, what's a better? Pantheon. Well, yeah, Pantheon, but yeah, but I mean, there it's stone tablet. Add, add another name to the to the list, right? Um, and so that and that's all they did, except for for the Jews. This was a really big deal. They were monotheistic. They had one god, and so then for for another nation to come in and say you need to pay taxes to this new god. That's why there was always rebellions and there was all this turmoil within this culture. And so that was a problem. And so what Rome would do is they would appoint local leaders and local people to, to rule and to reign over that. And so they appointed, Caesar appointed uh, Herod the Great. And um, he was appointed in, in 47 BC. And, and so counting, counting down then, right? This is before uh, year one. And so uh, in 40 uh, BC is when he was given the, the title of king. And he rules, and he was called Herod the Great. He was given that name because he, he actually brought stability to a very unstable period and time and land. That he was able to keep people in check, while at the same time, it seems, be generous. That he had this kind of bipolar uh, personality. Um, there was actually uh, some, some uh, stories that in, in, in difficult times that he would actually cancel taxes or he would pay the people's taxes out of his own wealth so that they would be able to make it through a time of depression. Or, or in famine, in the year 25 BC, there was a great famine and he actually melted down his own gold plates and different things to sell to people to be able to buy corn for people who needed it, right? That, that's, so you had that side of him. He was a great builder. Uh, if, if he built the temple in Jerusalem, it was Herod's temple is what it's called. And, uh, and so the, the temple that Jesus would have gone and worshiped to was built by this man. And all of his, uh, every single stone had his seal stamped into the stone. And even today, if you ever do go to the Wailing Wall, the last remaining piece of that temple that he built, all, they're all stamped with his, with his seal. He, he's the one who took credit for that because he did. He built it. And yet he had this other side, this evil side, this very, very superstitious side. And so anyone who ever, ever was maybe a threat to his power or tried to, to supersede him, he cut him down immediately. 
He actually killed his wife uh, because she was starting to threaten his position. He killed his oldest son and two other sons. Three of his sons he assassinated with his own hands because he was worried they might try to usurp his authority. That's the kind of man that he was. Uh, Caesar Augustus actually is quoted by saying uh, that it would be safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. That's that's this guy. It's safer, like this is Caesar, right? Like a dictator saying, I'd rather be one of his pigs than one of his sons. And Herod, while he had this bipolar thing, obviously the the murderous aspect of what he did uh, is what he was known for. And people hated him for it. And so actually, uh, when he was 70 years old, he knew he was about to die, and he rounded up on, on dumb little trumped-up charges on, on a lot of the wealthy and, and leaders of the, uh, in Jericho, or excuse me, in Jerusalem, and rounded them up, put them in prison, and right before he died, he had them all executed. And, and this is the quote here he said. He said, no one will mourn for my death, so I'm determined that some tears should be shed when I die. That's this guy. So when it says that King Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him, that's why. They were afraid. Oh no, there's someone else who's claiming to be king and he's supposed to be our king. Well, what's the, what's the ramifications of that? You see, because Herod was Jewish. And so therefore he was the king of the Jews. He oversaw the Jews and that was his title. And now all of a sudden the Magi come in and say, where is the king of the Jews? And he's like, uh, right here. What do you mean, right? So that is Herod the Great. And so then he asked the question, where is he? Right? So verse four, when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, these are the people who would have known the scriptures backwards and forward and probably had a lot of it memorized, um, that he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And without hesitation, they reply, and again, keep in mind Matthew's objective. Matthew's objective here is to help the Jewish community uh, that are reading this narrative for the first time. He's proving that this is the Messiah. We're taking all these Old Testament texts and we're saying all of these Prophecies just scream, this is him. This come the long expected redeemer. This is the one we've been waiting for. And they reply in Bethlehem and Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. And he's going to quote here Malachi. Or I have to say it, right? The Italian prophet Malachi. I know, it's so bad. You have to though. No, you don't. Says this in Malachi. But you... Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And so that's one aspect of the prophecy that we see. And this is, again, I just read this a couple weeks ago, but I want to read this again. This is the the prophecy that that Nathan is giving to, to David from Yahweh himself to the king of Israel saying that your, something about your line and your lineage is going to be established forever. And he's going to be born now in Bethlehem. Bethlehem simply means the city of David. Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build my house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, the first king of Israel, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But yet, physically on this earth, that doesn't happen. Israel's defeated. They're, they're under Roman occupation. So how could this be true? How can this be a covenant, an unbreakable covenant that God makes his people? Because it's not simply physical. It's a spiritual aspect. And he's saying, this is him. This is the one, the Messiah, the Redeemer that's going to set the people free. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So again, Matthew using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And there was a couple other things that just kind of zoom, I want to zoom in on, and this is simply the Magi and their gifts. What is it about their gifts that is so, so special? It says, then Herod called the Magi secretly. Um, Paul's going to talk a little bit more about that next week, about kind of what, what does Herod do with all of this. So Herod calls the the Magi secretly and and found out from them exactly the time the star had appeared, right? It's going to be about two years, right? Spoiler alert. They've been traveling. They've been wandering, looking for uh, Jesus. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You kind of hear like the, the evil leader, you know, just the right? These, this, this is my, my evil plan, my plot. I'm going to send you there. Let me know where he's at because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go worship him with my sword, right? I'm going to end this thing. And so that, that, that's what's happening here. And then they say this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw this child, the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after having been warned in a dream to go back to Herod, not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country on another route. And again, Paul will kind of uh, talk a little bit more about that next week, I think. I'm not putting words in his mouth. But I want to look at these three gifts they, they bring. Actually, this morning, Paul, I want to, I want to read a passage here. Um, Paul, Paul brought this up to my attention just this morning, and it's really cool, actually. I'd never, I'd never seen this or, or, or at least connected the dots. Um, and this is from Isaiah chapter 60. And again, keep in mind what Matthew's doing. Matthew is, um, he's, he's saying this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the one who's been prophesied about. So this is Isaiah chapter 60. And it's kind of the, the title of the chapter is the future glory of Jerusalem. It says this, right? Just connect the dots here. This is thousands of years before this day in, in Jerusalem or in, uh, in Jerusalem when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It says, Arise, Jerusalem, and shine like a star. The glory of the Lord is shining on you. Other nations will be covered by darkness, but on you the light of Yahweh will shine. The brightness of his presence will be with you. Right? Jesus coming to light up the darkness. Nations will be drawn to your light, and the kings to the dawning of your new day. Look around you and see what is happening. Your, your people are gathering to come home. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters will be carried like children. You will see this and be filled with joy. You will tremble with excitement. The wealth of the nations will be brought to you from across the sea. Their riches will come. 
And listen to this. Great caravans of camels will come from Midian, from Ephah, and from Sheba, bringing gold and frankincense. And people will tell the good news of what Yahweh has done. So Matthew, even in his narrative, is saying, this is, this is it. Like, are you, like this, is, this is crazy. These kings from faraway lands are actually coming to give and present these gifts. So what are these gifts and what is significant about these gifts? The first one is gold. And if we look at any kind of gold and even the story of King Herod melting down his plate, gold is simply symbolic of being a king, right? The king sit on a golden throne or all these different things or even Elvis Presley, the king, right? Wasn't his toilet made of gold, I think, right? Wasn't that a thing? Uh, right? It's just, it's symbolic of, of gold is surrounded or kings are surrounded by gold. It's just what it is. And so the, the Magi come in and saying, we want to give this child this gold as that Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote, we want to humble ourselves even though we are kings, even though we are wealthy, it is nothing to this child. And we want to give him this gold and we must submit to him even though we are kings. And as King David says in Psalm 110, Yahweh, my God, said to my Lord, my master, and even though King David was the most powerful man probably in the world at that time, he's saying, no, there's still somebody above me. It's Jesus. The second gift is, is frankincense. And, and this is really interesting that if we look, and I could open up a lot of different Old Testament texts that look at how frankincense is used in the temple. That is, there are temple different things and burning of incense going on. It's frankincense being burned in the temple. And it was something that only priests did. And so in this, again, symbolically saying you are king, but then symbolically saying you are also a priest. That we're giving you this, this aroma, this fragrance that would fill the temple for a priest to do. In Latin, a uh, priest is pontifex, which literally means bridge builder. All right? Jesus is that bridge builder. That he's the one that goes from sinful humanity and not just builds a bridge, he is the bridge that we then can go freely into the presence of God with this great high priest. That we go directly to him in prayer. No longer do we have to go to a, a priest, a Levitical priest, and confess our sins and, and burns this incense and kills a lamb. That we go to the great high priest. That we go to the one who has given of himself the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. One little pet peeve I have um, is this, and, and I kind of have to do this, but um, is that every time we, we see this, we always associate it with, um, with, with this. You know, who, who is this? Can anyone say? No, oh, thank you. All right, that's my pet peeve, right? Everyone sees Frankenstein, this image, and they go, oh, it's Frankenstein. No, it's not. This is Frankenstein's monster, right? It was Dr. Frankenstein, and he made his monster, okay? So don't associate the monster with Frankenstein. It's not Frankenstein, all right? Just... Just throwing that out there. So, so thank you. Thank you, you two educated men um, who threw that out there. I'm sure you all knew that though, right? Good. Okay, good. Lots of heads. Calm, calm down, Brian. It is a pet peeve. I just, it drives me nuts. I will correct you if you do that in front of me. All right. The last one is this, myrrh. And this one I think is, is probably the most, um, um, I know, symbolic of what they're doing. But, but myrrh was used um, in, in burial that what they would do in, in, in Jewish tradition and in a lot of uh, Middle Eastern traditions, but specifically within uh, Jewish communities, that what they would do is they would take a body and, and they, would, they would put a lot of spices uh, and fragrances and specifically myrrh 
And, and then they would take it, they would cover the body with that, and they would wrap it in, in claws, and they would put more of the spices and kind of make this uh, giant roll with all these different uh, fragrances to, to keep the smell down, right? So as that body is decaying, they didn't have embalming methods that we have today, and so they would do these funerals, and they would lay it in a tomb, and then that body over time would decay, and all of the flesh would rot off of it. And then they would then later on, uh, after a, a period of time, after it has all been uh, uh, you know, decomposed, they would go in and collect the bones. And they would go in, they'd collect the bones, they would put them in these little, what is called a sarcophagus, or a little box, and they'd put all the bones in there, and then, and then that would kind of be the burial ground. So if you see pictures outside of Jerusalem of all these boxes, that's what it is. They're not, there are tombs, there, there are bones in those. And that's when Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are like whitewashed sarcophaguses, right? You, you, you look pretty on the outside, but you got dead bones on the inside. That's, that's what he's talking about. And that's when myrrh would have been used, would have been in the burial sense. And so here we see them bringing the gold to say, you are king and frankincense to say, you are a priest. And then myrrh finally said, but you're also going to die. There's just some prophetic aspect of them giving him myrrh to say that you have literally been born to die for my sins. There's some symbolism going on here. Finally, the last point I want to make from this is this, that Jesus has always caused extreme reactions from people. He's always done that. That in the history of looking at Jesus, there are very few people, if any, who just go, eh, he's a nice guy. We're like, yeah, I mean, he's all, he's all right. He, he says some really nice things, and I think that's a, that's a cultural thing that we see uh, around us today. But yeah, man, he, he had some really good teachings, had some good morals. He claimed to be God. All right, and this is when we get to that, that C.S. Lewis quote of he either was a, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. I, I would never look at somebody who, who would get up and claim, hey, I'm actually God in the flesh. I, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the creator of the universe. And he's going to say some incredibly polarizing things. And he either has to be a liar about who he is. He has to, which, which I don't normally, we, we don't normally follow liars and say, yeah, this is a great, this is a great person. We, we love this individual, but man, he's a really bad liar. He's claiming to be God. Or he was a lunatic. He thought he was God, but he wasn't, or he actually is Lord. Those are the only options that Jesus actually lays out for people. There is no in-between ground. He's very polarizing. And so the reactions that we even see from this is just simply King Herod. Of King Herod saying, right, this is a, a gut-wrenching response when people come face-to-face -face with a God and a Savior. A Savior being born in a manger means Someone needs to pay for my sins because I'm not good enough to do it on my own. That's what this means. That's what Jesus being born in the manger means. Of that humility aspect. That's not what people do. It's offensive and they run from it and they, and they hate people who grasp onto this and say, no, this is. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes unto the Father but through me. That's polarizing. That is offensive to a lot of people. The other extreme, though, are the Magi. These other kings, these wise men who come and they bow low and they worship. They worship the king. They look at it and say, man, we, we have everything that we could ever want, and yet I see this baby lying in a manger and I go, that's for me. There's a, there's a bee on him. That's, that's not true. You get what I'm saying. Jesus is for me and he's going to die for me. 
Jesus even says this. All right? Jesus doesn't beat around the bush on this one. Looking at Luke chapter 12, 49 through 53, he says this. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what a constraint I am under until it is completed. He knows he's about to die. And he says this, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. This is Jesus. This, this, is, this is polarizing here. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's he saying? They just don't get along, right? It's just, it's just a family, right? Isn't that just part of being a family? You just argue about things? No. This is division. This is saying that when I go home for Christmas and I'm interacting with people who completely disagree with me that Jesus is the Savior of the world, who look at me and think, you're wasting your life. Like, you, you are given all your time and your talents and your work and your tail off to share this stupid gospel. It's not true. It's polarizing. And yet all I want to do is tell them about Jesus. There's division. This is what Jesus does. And yet all who come will be forgiven. That all who have a burden are heavy laden that when they come to the feet of Jesus in humble submission and say, I cannot save myself, that I am indeed a sinner and I have sinned against you and you alone, God, will you forgive me that he is just to forgive them of their sins and faithful to forgive them of their unrighteousness. So I want to end here again with another quote from Bonhoeffer, kind of flipping this and looking at the joy of Christmas in an un incomprehensible reversal of all righteousness and pious thinking, God declares himself guilty to the world and thereby extinguishes the guilt of the world. That's not polarizing. That sounds good, except, wait, what, are you saying I'm guilty of something? I'm not, I mean, I'm not guilty of anything. God himself takes the humiliating path of reconciliation, thereby sets the world free. Well, what do you mean free? I'm not... Not a bondage of anything. God wants to be guilty of our guilt and takes upon himself the punishment and suffering that this guilt brought to us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What kind of loving God would have to punish me? God stands in for the godlessness. Love stands in for hate. The Holy One for the sinner. It's polarizing. Now there is no longer any godlessness, any hate, any sin that God has not taken upon himself, suffered, and atoned for. Now there is no more reality and no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. That whosoever will come will be forgiven. That is what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. See the incarnate God, the unfathomable mystery of the love of God for the world. This is for me. God 
loves human beings, and God loves the world, not ideal human beings, but people as they are, and not an ideal world, but the real world. So in closing, in our application, before we sing and before we have communion, I just have two questions for you. Are you Herod this Christmas, or are you the Magi this Christmas? And maybe you think, no, no, I, I, I want to serve, I want to follow King Jesus, but it, Is there something in our heart that we're not willing to give to Jesus? Something in the recesses of our mind, of our heart, that just say, ah, that thing, I can't give that to you. I love that too much. Or are we going to be like the Magi? To go to any length imaginable to give riches and to bow the knee to King Jesus this Christmas? We're going to enter into a time of communion. And this is actually kind of a unique time to take communion. All right, here we are. We're, we're thinking about, we're imagining Jesus being born in a manger, but he doesn't stay a baby. He doesn't stay in a manger. He, he grows up. And he chooses to die for your sins and for mine. And, and in doing that and preparing for that, he, he establishes the sacrificial meal. And so we have this gold and we have this frankincense and we have this Myrrh, that he was born to die, and we remember that. That we take the bread and we eat that bread and we chew on that bread and we viscerally taste that Jesus died for my sins. And then we take the juice and remember that his blood was shed for mine because I'm the one who deserved the wrath of God. That is polarizing. But God chose to give of himself so that we wouldn't be polarized, that we wouldn't be in exile anymore, but that we would be brought near. So as we sing these Christmas carols, man, let's just remember who he is. Remember what he's done and what the Father has done for us. As we partake of these elements, will we simply remember, all I'd ask this morning is that you'd be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member here. You don't need to be a member of any church. You just need to come as you are and confess your sins to Jesus. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, There is a gluten-free option on this right side if that is a dietary need. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you that as we, we come to this Advent season that it is happy, it is beautiful to think of Jesus as this little baby and the joy that that brings, that's what this whole Advent season is about, is God taking on flesh. But he doesn't just take on flesh to be a good mentor, to be a good teacher, to teach us a a nice way to live. You came and you sent your son to this earth so that we would worship him as Lord and that we would obey his teachings, even his teachings on eternal life and death. That is so polarizing. So so those little things in our hearts that are that are pulling even in our own life to say, I don't wanna, I don't wanna give that, or even that theology, or Jesus said that thing, I'm really having a hard time with that. God, we just give that to you and trust that you are good and you are gracious. That even when we don't understand everything, that we can look to the cross, we can look to the manger and say, But Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. So God, as we partake of these elements, as we confess our sins privately and corporately, as we sing these songs, these carols to remember, God, would you be honored, would you be glorified as we boldly come to that throne of grace in our hour of need, 
because your great high priest is standing there mediating in our behalf. And it is in Jesus, the Redeemer, the Deliverer's name that I pray. Amen.